According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 1.1. Proverbs 1.1. We introduced the book of Proverbs last Wednesday, and I want to get right back to where we left off. We're highly unbalanced this morning, I noticed. Do you feel lonely? Okay. No, no, I'm not. It's good to know that Shirley does not submit to peer pressure. All right, well. All right, Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. Let's go down through verse 7. We'll introduce the book by showing you the purpose of the book, why uh, Solomon wrote these. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, this uh, sets the stage for us. It introduces the book and introduces our class this morning. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together this morning. We thank you for Psalms and Proverbs. We thank you for wisdom literature, uh, Father, and the blessings that we have in the Word of God to have such a variety of, uh, of truth. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear, speak to us today, Father, that which we need to understand for your good pleasure and for the glory of your Son, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we introduced, got through two points, I think, in the outline last week, written by Solomon in an early collection and a later collection. I'm going to rewrite that point, actually. <clears throat> written by Solomon in a two-part <clears throat> early collection. In a two-part early collection. Because I believe chapters 1 through 9 should be handled as a unit, and then chapters 10 through 24 should be handled as a unit. You will note uh, chapter 10, again, has a heading, the Proverbs of Solomon. And as you come to Proverbs 10.1, and you realize, well, yeah, what have I been reading the last nine chapters? <laughs> okay, Proverbs uh, 1.1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So you have a heading at the beginning of the book, and then you have a subheading in chapter 10, verse 1, again, the Proverbs of Solomon. And so you could think of chapters 1 through 24 in two parts, chapters 1 through 9, and then chapters 10 through 24. And so I think what I'm going to do is rewrite this first point of introduction, written by, I don't even know why it says the Solomon, written by Solomon in a two-part early collection, in a two-part early collection. And that's going to compare Proverbs 1-1 with Proverbs 10-1. 
And the reason why is because chapters 1 through 9 are, uh, consist of the wisdom he received in his childhood, the wisdom that was bestowed upon him by David and Bathsheba, the wisdom he received from his parents that he then wanted to bestow upon his children. All right, And we're going to see time and time again in these early chapters, my son, my son, my son. Uh, you'll notice in verse 8, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And the expression of father and mother, the, the um, terms that we have throughout these first nine chapters are overwhelming. And uh, the, the words of wisdom for a young man, particularly a young man in uh, who we would call today adolescence or teenage status, a young man that is uh, approaching adulthood that is dealing with uh, things he's never had to deal with before as a boy, right? Feelings and, and sexual things and matters that he has to get a handle on in his youth or he'll be a train wreck as an adult. And uh, that's what we deal with in these first nine chapters. And then chapter 10, again with a new heading, a subheading, uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now we start to get into what is commonly understood in terms of Proverbs as the one and two uh, verse uh, uh, kind of shotgun approach to to the text. It's hard to teach verse by verse because the subject matter bounces and it skips and it just it's like a, a potluck where you don't know you know why you have macaroni with your cheeseburger. This is, that's what you ended up with, okay? Because that's what got brought and that's the order it was placed on the on the serving table. And so we get through these in uh, Proverbs ten through twenty four, and then. In Proverbs 25.1, another heading. This is now a later collection. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, but why did Solomon not include them in his first collection? Why did Solomon not include them when he drafted chapters 10 through 24? The, the pattern seems to be similar. They, they, it appears to be di-stitches and tri-stitches and, and so forth. It appears to be uh, the, the Hebrew poetry either in parallel or in well, they're always in parallel, but either synonymous or antithetical uh, poetry. And uh, we'll see why. Well, it says, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. In other words, later uh, Bible students, later probably even including prophets. I think the men of, of uh, Hezekiah would have even included the prophet Isaiah, would have included um, priests and prophets and, and uh, uh, other Bible scholars. Anyway, we know that he wrote many more than are included in the book of Proverbs because we were told uh, under point two that uh, he had a, a prolific writing career. And uh, we'll look at First uh, Kings 4 here in just a moment. But that heading in Proverbs 25 I think is important. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So written material that was still available in the, the days of King Hezekiah, we're talking about 700 B.C. at that point, about 260 years after Solomon. Okay, so You put Solomon around 960, 930 thereabouts. You put uh, Hezekiah about 700. Okay, And uh, written by Solomon, but not uh, placed in the canon until much later. All right, now... I don't know if that bothers you or not. It doesn't bother me at all, but some people struggle with it. Some people um, really have not thought through what canonicity is, uh, have not thought through what the Holy Spirit did when He motivated men not only to write, but then when He motivated men to gather and collect and compile, as Ezra did for much of Chronicles, as, as much of the Old Testament was done, the Psalms themselves. 150 psalms 
were actually originally collected into five different books of Psalms. All right? And you find subheadings within the book of Psalms as well. And uh, David didn't just sit down and, and write all 150 Psalms in order. He only wrote about half of them himself anyway. Uh, Moses wrote a Psalm or two. Solomon wrote a couple of Psalms out of the 150 we have in our canon. So the process of not only writing is what the Holy Spirit was involved with, but also the process of compiling, collecting, presenting it in its final form, whereby it was accepted uh, by the people of God, by the covenant people of God, as revealed Scripture. Canonicity has to include that as well. And maybe some more of these things will come up as we, uh, as we work our way through, or not. Maybe some of these things we'll kind of reserve for a, a PMW type of class or something like that. Uh, but I, I find it interesting and important, because if you don't know it, and then someone throws something in your face about, well, why isn't this in the Bible? Uh, you know, there's a 151st Psalm that's in some Catholic text. Why don't we have it? Um, we, need to, we need to understand how the canon was put together, particularly in Old Testament canonicity. All right. So written by Solomon in, two, in a two-part early collection and a later collection uh, gathered in the days of Hezekiah. Secondly, the Bible's testimony is to Solomon's wisdom and literary production. And we won't reread all these because we looked at them last week, but the one I do want to highlight is in um, 1 Kings 4, verses 29 through 34. 1 Kings 4 to let us know that there was a tremendous uh, production here of writing. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And we're going to see the value that was placed in different oriental courts, value that was placed in the eastern world on wisdom. Uh, for not only kings, but to, for kings to surround themselves with advisors, with viziers, with administrators that uh, likewise would have such wisdom. And he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan the Ezraite, whoever he was, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, whoever they were, the sons of Mahol, whoever he was. Okay, And, and I'm kind of joking about this, but these are men that were known in his, in his day that are lost to us now in history. But at the time Proverbs was written, at the time First Kings was written, all right, um, that uh, these men were still legendary and, and, uh, and uh, Solomon was, uh, was surpassed all of them. His fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Okay? Very precise, 1,005. Not a round number, not, you know, I would have just rounded it off at 1,000 to, you know, match the 3,000 proverbs. But he didn't stop with 1,000 songs. He wrote five more. He, uh, and so, are all of those in the Bible? No. Only a fraction of those are in the Bible. Only two Psalms are in the Bible. Psalm 127 and the other one I can never remember. All right, two of our 150 Psalms are Solomon's, and then plus the Song of Solomon. All right, we've got a book of the Bible there, Song of Solomon. Um, you've got Ecclesiastes. And that's, I don't think that's even spoken of here in, in uh, verse 32. Um, and then 3,000 Proverbs. How many of those are contained in the book of Proverbs? 
Well, it depends on how you count them. Are you only counting chapters 10 through 24? Are you counting chapters 25 through through uh, 29? Remember, because chapters 30 and 31 aren't even Solomon's either. They, they belong to um, Lemuel. They belong to these uh, Augur in chapter 30 and Lemuel and his mother in chapter 31. He also spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even of the hyssop that grows on the wall. Why was he interested in that? He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Well, who cares? Come on. I find it interesting. I, um, I don't remember now where I was reading it, but somebody was talking about Isaac Newton and the great scientific achievements that he had and, and uh, the, the scientific mind of Isaac Newton. And they were lamenting. Uh, no, they weren't lamenting. That's biblical. They were, uh, they were moaning. They were uh, carnally angry that Isaac Newton spent so much time writing about the Bible, that he wasted so much time writing commentaries on books of the Bible, that uh, think about how much more science Isaac Newton could have done if he hadn't wasted so much of his life uh, pursuing Bible studies. And you just, man, you hang your head and you weep, and you think, what do you think drove him to do the scientific studies that he did? Was his faith in God and the Creator and the natural laws that his Bible study convinced him uh, demanded that there, there was uh, legitimate laws of science that could be pursued. Anyway, doesn't surprise me at all that, that Sam, uh, Solomon's going to have secular wisdom and applications there that, that he's going to find interest in. With breadth of mind that God gives him, I would think that there's not any field of study that he wasn't proficient in and, and interested in pursuing. And then finally, verse 34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And this, the reason for this is because of the foreshadowing of what this is going to be in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, when kings will come and they will worship him as the God-man, as the king of the universe on the throne of David, and then the wisdom that he will bestow upon them, not just in, in biblical things, but in uh, science and technology and medicine and everything. Imagine if you thought Solomon was wise, just wait till Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. <coughs> All right, Solomon was preeminent above any foreign rivals, including the wise men of Egypt. Egypt was known for its wisdom. Egypt, in fact, had a comprehensive priesthood in their hieroglyphics that were dedicated to uh, not only maintaining the wisdom but then um, keeping control of it <laughs> in, their, uh, uh, in their system. I should also add, we've got uh, Genesis 41.8, Exodus 7.11, 1 Kings 4.30, Isaiah 19, verses 11 and 12. I would also add, uh, where's the reference in Acts? Acts 7, I think, that talk about Moses being brought up and all of the educated and all the uh, learning of Egypt. And uh, that's Acts 7.22. And Moses, uh, after he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses, excuse me, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. So all the learning of the Egyptians. Acts 7.22 uh, could be added to the slide there. Uh, Genesis 41.8, let's take a look at these. What's happening in Genesis 41? Joseph is uh, being promoted. 
and uh, Pharaoh has this dream, and uh, it troubles him, and in the morning his spirit was troubled. His spirit was troubled. Why is that an important verse? Well, is Pharaoh a believer or an unbeliever at this point? Yeah, I don't have any reason to believe he's saved until later. I think he probably gets saved under the influence of Joseph. But anyway, uh, for folks that want proof that uh, unbelievers have spirits, uh, they have dead human spirits, but even a dead human spirit can be troubled. It needs to be quickened. It needs to be made alive. All right. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And so you have those that specialize in the supernatural. There are those that specialize in the natural uh, on a a wisdom basis. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And, of course, this is going to lead to Joseph being uh, promoted once he is uh, released from prison and interprets the dream. Uh, Down to verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Recognizing that wisdom is is desirable in political achievements, uh, and wisdom that comes from God is the best wisdom of all. Right? No one is like you. God has given you this spirit. And so you shall be over my house according to your command, and all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Languages there are very similar to when Potiphar gave Joseph control of everything except his wife, except his, except his home, and uh, gave everything into Joseph's care. And uh, here's Pharaoh doing much the same, giving him control over everything except being Pharaoh. All right. So we see wisdom there, verse 8 and in verse uh, 38 and 39. Over to Exodus chapter 7. Moses has to deal with these people. And uh, not only Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's advisors, his counselors. And uh, Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Pharaoh's staff swallowed up their staff. See, yeah, the magicians did the same miracle, the same work of supernatural power. Of course, Moses did his, or Aaron did his, by God's power. These magicians did theirs by Satan's power. And uh, important things that we understand also, the fact that there is real power that is employed by our adversary, and that there is a counterfeit wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom from above, and the wisdom from below. Book of James talks about that. Two different uh, realms of wisdom. And they do come into uh, conflict. 1 Kings 4.30, we talked about that already. Uh, Wiser than all the men of Egypt. Finally, Isaiah 19, verses 11 and 12. And this is uh, significant because this is contemporaneous with the days of Hezekiah when they found additional Proverbs of Solomon. And by the leading of the Holy Spirit, they compiled uh, the additional Proverbs of Solomon into a second collection of Proverbs to be canonized. And in the uh, message of Isaiah here, talking about the coming judgment, the oracle concerning Egypt, and uh, part of what happens 
when God's hand of discipline is uh, on a nation. So pay attention for our nation. <laughs> okay? And uh, when God places a nation under divine discipline, bad things happen. And I will incite Egyptian against Egyptian. You find that uh, the population is at each other's throats. Republicans against Democrats, and no one can agree on anything. They will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, red states and blue states. And, uh, you know, if you're going to move here from your train wreck, fine, but, but quit voting for the stuff that made your state a train wreck and don't bring that garbage here. Anyway, but this is what we're talking about. You have a nation that's divided. And uh, the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them. They will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead, to mediums and to spiritists. What do they turn to? They turn to uh, satanic wisdom. And uh, anyway, then uh, more discipline. Actually, you can parallel this very well, I think, with Leviticus 26 and see the cycles of discipline here. Uh, You have drought. You have agricultural uh, difficulties. Um. Fishermen uh, lament, and so there's uh, food shortages, there's uh, price increases. They tell you there's no inflation, but you're watching the the price of food going up. Uh, Manufacturers of linen, they're utterly dejected. There goes your industry, there goes your commerce and your trade. Uh, Pillars of Egypt will be crushed. The hired laborers will be grieved in soul. The princes of Zon are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. You end up with people in high powers of office. You end up with uh, people with no legitimate achievements, and yet they're running the country. You end up with uh, all kinds of things, right? And uh, how can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Well, then where are your wise men? Where are the grown-ups running this country? Instead, you got these Fools, you have these, uh, yeah, these children saying things like, dude, that was two years ago. (laughs) All right, I'm going to stop that. But we see Scripture unfold. And what happens then to the wise men? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you. Let them understand that the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Purposed. And that's going to be a term that we're going to see in our vocabulary coming up because it uh, comes up in uh, Proverbs. All right, then uh, Edom, also known for its wisdom. Edom, known for its wisdom, the Edomites. Remember, Edom is is, uh, Esau. That's Jacob's twin brother. They are kin to Israel. The only difference between Edom and Israel is that uh, they're both twin sons of uh, twin brothers, sons of Isaac, right? Remember Isaac, uh, Rebecca gave birth to Jacob and Esau. So what's the difference? Esau I loved, and or Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Why is it that the older will serve the younger? Why is it that God in His sovereignty and in His grace exalted Jacob, made his twelve tribes the tribe of Israel, the tribes of Israel? What about Edom and all his tribes? Well. So long as they attach themselves to Jacob, they will be blessed. If they attack Jacob, they will be cursed. Anyway, Jeremiah 49, 7. They did come to be known in the later centuries for their wisdom. They specialized in some 
uh, wise men. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is there no longer any wisdom in Teman? Has good counsel been lost to the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? You know, the, thing, the very thing that they're known for is now gone. So what do they got left? More discipline there too. Flee away, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the disaster of Esau upon him at the time I punish him. And so the reflection of Esau, the person, is now applied to Edom, the, uh, the nation. And then Obadiah. Amos Obadiah. If you get to Jonah, you've gone too far. Daniel, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Verse 8. Um, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. Just because you're the twin brother of Jacob doesn't mean that you, you, uh, God's going to cut you any slack. You're still under uh, the same expectation every other Gentile nation's under. That uh, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. Edom is a Gentile nation because Edom is not Israel. Babylon was well known for their wisdom. Babylon, very known for their wisdom. In fact, an entire tribe within Babylon, an entire um, ethnicity, the Chaldeans, were uh, noted for their scholarship and their wisdom. Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50 and 51, Daniel 1, Daniel 2. There's a lot of this in Daniel. And just like Joseph with Pharaoh, Daniel and his three friends with uh, Nebuchadnezzar stood head and shoulders above all the rest because God was the one that had given Daniel secular wisdom, the ability to succeed in temporal life pursuits. Let's look at these. Isaiah 47. Again, this is significant because this is contemporaneous with Hezekiah. This is contemporaneous with the collection of the the second part of Proverbs by the men of Hezekiah during his days. So while uh, those Proverbs being compiled and added to the canon of Scripture, we have a Gentile nation that's known for its wisdom. Isaiah 47 1 says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. And uh, goes on down through verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. So here's the problem. You say, well, what's wrong with having wisdom? What's, having, what's wrong with having knowledge? Well, how are you using it? How did you obtain it? What wisdom are you pursuing? And what's it doing to you? They have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. <laughs> well, now you know what wisdom they're pursuing, don't you? The wisdom of our adversary. See, wisdom will do something to you. That's the point we're going to make, and we're going to find out. If you're pursuing God's wisdom, then it will guard you. It will bless you. It will nourish you. It will sustain you. If you pursue God's wisdom, it will be a a safeguard to you. 
you can embrace her. And there's language that's used there for a young man who, uh, you know, he's having, having feelings he's never had before and, and you know, he, uh, girls are looking soft and huggable. And there's, a, there's a, a stage of life where as you start to think about embracing, all right, you better learn right now to embrace the Lord, to embrace His wisdom, to embrace the divine norms and standards of the Word of God. And there is a blessing for embracing the right kind of woman, that is, your wife. <laughs> and then there is discipline for embracing the wrong kind of woman, okay? The strange woman, the adulteress. And, and the metaphor is true as far as it goes in, 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 in earthly terms. Um, you know, be faithful in your marriage and, and don't commit adultery. Uh, but the spiritual lesson is the bigger point in Proverbs, is that embracing God's wisdom as opposed to embracing Satan's wisdom. Each one will do something to you. God's wisdom will purify you and cleanse you and guard you and lift you up. Satan's wisdom will tear you down. And that's what we see here. This is what Satan's wisdom is doing. It is uh, deluding you. It has lied to you. It's given you a false security. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. This is the fool that said in his heart, there is no God because I become my own God in this uh, insanity. Evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. <laughs> At a certain point, you're lost, and all that wisdom you've used, all this, you've got a long career with this, it does nothing for you now. You cannot charm it away. Disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. Destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. There is atonement and destruction you've got no frame of reference for. All right. It goes on. Uh, verse 12 of Isaiah 47, Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. Uh, but, uh, yeah, don't hold your breath. <laughs> All right. Anyway, there's more on that. I, if I let myself now, I'll get lost in uh, the book of Isaiah. Stay tuned for Isaiah. That's coming up. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. Now, the more I read in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the more I see the downfall of Judah. I see the downfall of a nation that used to serve the Lord. And uh, Jeremiah watched Jerusalem fall and from the inside. And uh, the Lord may be equipping us to see the very same thing. Jeremiah 50, um, God is going to go forth and rescue Israel, rescue Judah. Um, verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the sons of Israel are oppressed, the sons of Judah as well, and all who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will vigorously plead their case that He may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. There's the wisdom of Babylon, but it's not going to save them. God is against them. A sword against the oracle priests, 
They will become fools, a sword against her mighty men. They will be shattered. And so your political leadership is ridiculous and military defeat is, uh, is in store. Sword against their horses, sword against their chariots. Everything that made them victorious in the past, it will do them no good now. So, uh, so much for their armor and their air force. Against all the foreigners who are in their midst of her, they will become women. A sword against her treasures and they will be plundered. Okay? Not to be insulting upon women, but in a combat scenario, um, a man versus a woman is no contest. Face to face, sword to sword. All right. Yeah, Jeremiah was not politically correct. Uh, chapter 51 and verse 57. Jeremiah 51, 57. And you'll notice, uh, again, in a context... Days are coming when I will punish the idols of Babylon. And some of this, of course, is historically fulfilled when Persia overthrows Babylon. We understand the history of that, but then some of this is looking forward eschatologically because there is an eschatological Babylon that falls in uh, the book of Revelation. So days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols. And uh, verse 54, the sound of an outcry from Babylon, the great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. Verse 55, the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon. Her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered. The Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. And we know that ultimately, it's a lot of folks try to find fulfillment of this in the 5th century B.C. or 6th century B.C. when Cyrus and the Persians overthrow Babylon. But much of this is waiting for an eschatological fulfillment. The God of recompense. Recompense is second advent. I will make her princes and her wise men drunk, her governors, her prefects, her mighty men. They may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so uh, more judgment there. Over to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Remember when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came the first time, took some hostages. And uh, King Jehoiakim is given into his hand, and so he plunders the house of God and takes some hostages, including Daniel and his three friends, youths, in whom was no defect. Uh, these are sons of the royal family, some of the nobles. Uh, we expect that they were the tribe of Judah, that they were uh, family members of the various clans of the uh, Davidic house, and hostages that could then be held uh, as leverage against the king. And uh, they were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And this is what they're going to do. They're going to they're turn them into good, loyal um, Babylonians through the Chaldean education. Ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so their education, you want to pervert a, a people? Go through the public school system, pervert a people. All right. Pray for our school system. Anyway, what happens? God gives them favor. And uh, remarkably enough, what happens here at the end of this? Verse uh, 17, 
As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence, not just in Bible study, not just in spiritual matters, in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And it turns out, not only did they graduate from the university, but they are ten times better than all the men already working in that field. It says uh, they entered into the king's personal service. And uh, verse 20 is, For every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who in all his realm. See, the impact on that I find powerful. This is, you realize what this is saying? They're not just better. In, in, um, in verse 19, they're better than their graduating class. Right? In verse 19, as he speaks to every, every graduating senior here, uh, out of everyone graduating from the University of Babylon in this current year, um, they're the top four in their class. No one can compare. But it's bigger than that. That's verse 19. In verse 20... He actually compares them to everybody currently at work. See, that's huge. Because a lot of times, you know, a college graduate gets out of school and he starts working and he gets into the industry and he finds, he thinks he knows everything because he graduated top of his class, but then he goes to work for a company, he's working with guys that have been doing it for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, he realizes, I don't know a whole lot, okay? I know what they taught me in class, but here's the real world and here's the men that have been doing it all this time. And they know the real deal, all right? It's not always a conflict, but often it is. But now here's what the Scripture is saying, is that they, they, they land this first job, and, and they're already better than anybody that's been doing it all that time. The magicians and the conjurers and all the uh, men of wisdom in all his realm. Well, who promoted them? God promoted them. God gave them that wisdom. God blessed them in their studies because God is suiting them to stand the task when, in just a few years, the, the king is going to rebel. The king of, Ju- of Judah is going to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to go back and pull him down and put a new king in his place. But he doesn't execute the hostages, see. Remember, they were held hostage to guarantee Jehoiakim's good behavior. And when he rebels, those hostages should be executed. Well, that's not going to happen. Because God gives them so much grace and so much favor and so much skill and so much wisdom that when, they, uh, when the rebellion takes place, Nebuchadnezzar keeps them in office. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, again we see the, uh, the wise men there. And uh, chapter 5 and verse 8, again the wise men that are, can't read the writings on the wall, the writing on the wall. They could not read the inscription or make known the interpretation, but Daniel could. Egypt, Edom, Babylon, all known for their wisdom. Later, the Greeks will be known for their wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.22 And I think the Greeks are remarkable because the Greeks took all the learning from Egypt, from Babylon. The Greeks took all of the wisdom from the east and systematized it in a western way of thinking and brought uh, human thought to uh, in some respects a pinnacle that has ever been and uh, God allowed that to happen to demonstrate that uh, all uh, that eye has seen or ear heard or have entered into the heart of man that his that uh, prepared the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ anyway summarizing uh, Earl Cairns' Christianity Through the Centuries.
but the uh, the role of Greek philosophy and the role of Roman law and the role of everything God did to prepare for the birth of Jesus Christ in the fullness of times. There's a lot to be said for that. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ. Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles, foolishness. Well, of course, because... Um, uh, it's the, uh, of course, it's foolishness to the world. The power of God, the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And uh, this is what we have when we contrast God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. So the Bible's testimony is to Solomon's wisdom and literary production. Solomon was preeminent above any foreign rivals, and uh, really, the wisest human being ever walked this earth, okay? Until Jesus Christ is uh, incarnate in the flesh. Wisdom literature, point three, again, introduction. Wisdom literature is a well-attested genre in the history of the ancient Near East. Wisdom literature is a well-attested genre. And I think there's two mistakes you can make in understanding genres of literature. One is to overemphasize it, and you can carry it to an extreme and overemphasize genre and do damage to your Bible studies. The other is to ignore it, (laughs) in which case you minimize the impact of genre, and again, it damages your Bible studies. I think we want to understand the role of wisdom literature in the ancient Near East. The New American Commentary to the book of Proverbs on page 21 gives us a, uh, a remarkable summary. I think it's also useful to recognize how Proverbs compares to other things. And there's, there's really no comparison because God wrote Proverbs and didn't write those other things. But at least... It is uh, noteworthy to say, okay, there is a facsimile of Proverbs in other cultures. And even in modern times, even in you know, the founding of our country. I mean, Ben Franklin was a modern-day philosopher. He was a modern-day, you know, poor Richard's Almanac and all of his words of wisdom, all of his Proverbs, the Proverbs of Ben Franklin. Countless others, right? Um, but understanding the genre, I think, is useful because it, it bursts a lot of myths. A lot of people that, that try to tell you that Israel was, uh, that, that David and Solomon didn't exist, it's all mythological, and that Israel was illiterate until they came back from Babylon, and, and all of that's just insane. Because in the second millennium BC, we have uh, literature comparable to Proverbs, I think inferior to Proverbs, but it did exist. This po- kind of poetry existed. And it existed in languages like Ugaritic and uh, uh, Aramaic, Egyptian, uh, Akkadian, Sumerian. It existed in languages older than Hebrew. So when these liberals tell you that the Hebrew people didn't have poetry in their day and age, they just don't know what they're talking about. They're repeating mythology, and it's it's all a bunch of garbage. So uh, let me read from the New American Commentary, page 21. Make up my mouse. There we go. Wisdom in the Ancient Near East. And there we go. Israelite wisdom literature is distinctive but not unique in form and subject matter. Throughout the Ancient Near East, many analogies to Israelite wisdom can be found. Some are closer than others. In fact, the love poems of Egypt that people try to relate to Song of Solomon is uh, not as close as they make it out to be. But anyway... Uh, while none of the wisdom literature of the other nations is exactly like that of Israel, um, 
Similarities are so conspicuous that they cannot be ignored. More than that, the comparison of the Bible to contemporary ancient Near Eastern material has often clarified the purpose and message. Um, purpose and message of the biblical text. The history of the Egyptian wisdom literature covers two millennia. Two millennia, all right? From the Old Kingdom to the Hellenistic period. So going back all the way to 2650, there's the Old Kingdom, 2650 to 2135, okay? And uh, that's, that's pre-Abraham. That's old, all right? Comes from important uh, Patahotep, as well as the fragmentary text of, uh, and these are hard to pronounce, Hardjadef and Kagemni. If you want more on this, ask Glenn Carnegie. Glenn uh, got his master's degree in Egyptology in the University of Chicago. So he'll, he'll, uh, he'll even read some of this for you in ancient Egyptian if you want. Uh, the very first, from the very first intermediate period, 2135 to 2040, I, I'd say that's comparable to Abrahamic, uh, comes the instruction uh, to Mirakari, given by his father, an aging king. And in fact, some of it is very reminiscent of the, my son, my son, give heed to your father, uh, that David pours out his heart to Solomon. You can find echoes and reminiscence of, uh, of the instruction to Mirakari here. Several important works survive from the Middle Kingdom including the instruction of Amenemet, the admonitions of Epewer, the dispute between a man and his soul, the eloquent peasant. <laughs> I really want to read the eloquent peasant someday. Uh, of these, the instruction of Amenhotep is most relevant to Proverbs, although the others relate to Ecclesiastes and Job. Also, a number of texts on the scribal trade began to appear in Egypt, including the significant work of Keheti, the son of Duaf, often called the satire on trades. And of course, when they write... Uh, a discourse on trades. Uh, which trade do you think got, got exalted above all the rest? The, the scribe. <laughs> the role of the scribe takes center stage because, well, it's the scribes that are writing it after all. You know, if the blacksmith if the blacksmiths wanted to write and glorify about the the delights of blacksmithy, well, then they should have written about it. But see, the scribes wrote about it. So, anyway, it just makes me laugh. Um, so these writings portrayed the profession of the scribe as the greatest of all the trades. Well, yeah, I wonder why. All right. From the New Kingdom, 1550 to, eight to 1080, and now we're starting to approach Saul and David. All right, now we're starting to approach the time after Israel has departed from uh, Egypt. Comes the uh, instruction of Ani, as well as the instruction of Aminamup. Worker, uh, works of major significance in the study of the Old Testament wisdom since Proverbs 22 through 24 seems to be related to it. We're, we'll discuss that when we get that far. That's debatable. Also, a number of love songs closely analogous to Song of Songs appears at this time. Again, I think that's debatable. Later significant treatises include the instruction of, wow, Ankh Shishanki and the instruction of Papyrus in Singer. That's all Egypt, okay? And that's all Egypt a millennia, two millennia, you know, a millennia and a half before Solomon. So the idea that Solomon could not have produced it, the idea that, well, this was after the Babylonian captivity, that they were illiterate before their captivity, is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. A large number of Sumerian proverbs have been collected and published. A few of these are moralistic in the manner of many biblical proverbs. Most have a reproachful, humorous, or practical character. You know, and it's not hard. Even This is why Proverbs is so self-evident. Proverbs almost teaches itself, 
right? You can teach this to your children. It goes without saying, can a man put fire in his bosom and not get burned? Well, duh. If you stick a, a, take a lit torch and shove it down your shirt, that's going to hurt, okay? And you don't have to be saved to know that. This is the nature of wisdom. And even, even uh, an unbeliever... Now, we've got to understand now, the, the natural man cannot, cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him that must be spiritually appraised. However... The practical aspects of wisdom that relate to temporal life, secular life, earthly life, like the laws of divine establishment. Unbelievers can have blessed marriages, blessed families, if they follow biblical principles, if they are honest with one another, if they have integrity with one another, if they're faithful in their marriage vows. Unbelievers can have marriages, sometimes better than believers' marriages, because they're at least living under temporal principles and the believers are rejecting all of that. Anyway, so it's not surprising that some of the Sumerian Proverbs, some of the uh, Akkadian and Sumerian versions... Now, they're not... The difference, though, is those Proverbs kind of approach life on an observational basis, what we see, what we learn, what everybody knows, conventional wisdom, okay? Everybody knows that. Um, God's wisdom provides what only He can know on an absolute basis. And that's the difference. So uh, some material has survived in both Akkadian and Sumerian versions, including the instructions of Shurupak. Other pieces of Akkadian wisdom is the uh, councils of wisdom. The preceptive hymns, including the bilingual hymn of Ninurta and the Shamash hymn, makes praise to a God with warnings about divine justice and thus have some affinity to the biblical wisdom psalms and Proverbs 1 through 9. Something else I haven't really addressed yet is why did David write the psalms and Solomon write the Proverbs? Why is it in that order? What do psalms and Proverbs provide for us? I'll let you think about it. I'll answer this next week. I'll just tease you with it today. Because these are the realms of the Bible that... um, uh, it's not like Romans. It's not like the New Testament. It's not like a, an exegetical study. Doctrinal churches tend to be weak in Psalm and Proverbs. I don't think I'm wrong for saying that. Um, and we're going to study on a doctrinal basis. We're going to study exegetically. We're going to study systematically, analytically, line upon line, precept upon precept, but at the same time, we have to back up a little bit and say, hold on, this is poetry. Hold on a second, this is music. Hold on a second. Okay? Because we're going to try to treat Proverbs like uh, a legal line of argumentation from the mind of Paul, we're in trouble. You can't handle poetry that way. You can't handle Proverbs that way or Psalms that way. Have you noticed this? I'm going to get an amen here in a minute. (laughs) Musicians think differently. (laughs) all right musicians think differently poets think differently and when we're dealing with psalms we're dealing with proverbs there's a breadth of mind that solomon had that other minds don't quite follow all the time or maybe ever, <laughs> all right? And so we can be thankful that God has given us the variety that He has. And I believe that in Psalms we have the devotional. 
in Proverbs we have the practical. And both Psalms and Proverbs is perfectly harmonious with the law, perfectly harmonious with the doctrine. There's, no, there's, there's never going to be any devotional psalm or practical proverb that flies in the face of law, flies in the face of doctrine. And I think we need to, have, we, we need to take it in its place. And that's what we're going to study in this study on Proverbs. All right. Pessimistic literature. My favorite. Pessimistic literature, analogous to Job or Ecclesiastes, has also come out of Mesopotamia. A final work of note here is the words of Ahikar, a text found at, the, at Elephantine in Egypt and written in Aramaic very cognate language to uh, Hebrew. It may, be, uh, it may be significant that little Ugaritic wisdom literature has been found. Ugaritic is, closer, uh, is the closest of all the, the Northwest Semitic languages to Hebrew. And yet, um, that culture just didn't produce any wisdom literature, at least none that we found to this point. Some proverbial uh, material is said to have been found at Ebla, needs to be greater collation of those. The wisdom literature of the ancient Near East is often similar to that found in the Bible and in some cases may have influenced it. Specific parallels are then discussed below. Now, the point is, all this stuff was available. All of this stuff existed when Solomon was alive. Do you think he knew about it? Yeah. You better believe he knew about it. You better believe he collected it. You better believe that he collated it, that he read from it, that he improved upon it, that God, in giving him that great breadth of mind and giving him that great understanding of these things, had a frame of reference to do that. See, why was Paul so well read in the, in the Greek poets of his day? You know, he quoted from at least four of them. Why, did, why was Paul so, you know, some people would say, well, don't waste your time with that stuff. Just stick with the Bible. Well, Paul was up to speed on the contemporary philosophical thought of his day and age. If we are woefully ignorant of the uh, postmodernism that saturates our college um, campi, <laughs> okay, campuses, the, uh, uh, then how do we engage? How do we engage when folks come to us and, and they've got a, a way of thinking that's just it's, it's alien? We should at least be aware of it so we're not blindsided when, when, when uh, in conversation it takes us six hours to figure out the planet they're from. Okay? So it's, it's, I think it's useful to compare Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. It's, it's useful, even the Job, it's useful to compare these books of the Bible as a genre with Similar writings from Gentile nations. I think there's a use in that. We can compare them. We can contrast them. We can obviously see the similarities. We also can see the differences. We don't fall for the, uh, for the, the pathetic lies that says that, well, basically the Jewish people stole everything they stole from. They didn't. You know, we, we, we can reject the garbage and still glean the benefits of these comparable studies. All right, because we believe that there is a God of the universe who inspired the canon of Scripture, that God led David to write all his psalms, that God moved Solomon to write all his proverbs, that God moved Moses to, compo- to write the, uh, the Pentateuch, 
that uh, the, the creation account was given by inspiration of God. It was not ripped off from uh, the, the, the epic of Gilgamesh or some kind of a, uh, some kind of a mythology with Tiamat and Marduk. All right? That's the point I'm trying to make. Kenneth Kitchen has a wonderful analysis on the uh, book of Proverbs. In fact, I think Kitchen's work does uh, a remarkable job in um, describing the uh, continuity of Proverbs and the structure of Proverbs and why we accept Proverbs in the form that we have it now, in the 31 chapters and in the structure that we have. This, too, is part of the New American Commentary, page 39. And this is useful. It is generally agreed that Proverbs is made up of a number of sections, each of which is headed by a superscription. Okay? And it's useful to identify that. It actually is observation from the text. So chapters 1 through 9, chapters 10 through 22.16. There's a subscript in 22.17 I haven't highlighted yet. It's not a section heading, but it is a subscript in 22.17, where it says uh, the sayings of the wise, right? It says, uh, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. And this appears in 22.17, appears to be a, uh, a subheading that uh, Solomon uh, gathered from other sources and placed in his collection. Uh, we've already highlighted... Uh, chapters 25 through 29. There's another subheading in 24-23. These also are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judgment is not good. Well, where did Solomon get that? Well, it's a saying. You know what they say. You know you know what they say. They've been, they have been saying that kind of stuff for thousands of years. Solomon put it in the in this canon of Scripture here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, then there's chapter 30, there's chapter 31. The differences between Proverbs 1 through 9 and 10 through 29 have attracted much attention. The former is a presentation of lengthy, well-crafted discourses, whereas the latter is a collection of pithy sayings, seemingly without editorial arrangement. Pithy sayings. Those are short, self-evident, uh, axiomatic proverbs. Um, but the chapters 1 through 9 are different. They're discourses. They're my son. They're my son. They're pleading with, uh, with a young man to listen to wisdom. Many scholars, um, the losers, the liberals, the ones that doubt God wrote the Bible, uh, regard Proverbs 1 through 9 as reflecting a later, more advanced development of Israelite wisdom from the post-exilic period. They're, they're wrong, but we'll let that go. Um, the theological reflection here, as well as the personification of wisdom in chapter 8, they're wrong about that too, seems to represent an advance over the secular and empirical approach of the maxim of Proverbs 10, 1 through following, which are thought to be earlier. The present redactional structure of the book is often dated around 450 to 350 B.C. That's the German liberal approach, all right? And I think Kitchen blows it up. The present uh, debate over the structure and date of Proverbs entered an entirely new phase, however, with Kenneth Kitchen's publication of his research on the formal structure of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. And it's available in Logos if you have some of the journals. It's in the uh, 
Tyndale Bulletin from 1977. Proverbs and Wisdom Books of the Ancient Near East. And it's boring, it's dry, it's, it's detailed, it's hard to read, and I love every page. <laughs> all right? Because it goes through all the nitty-gritty detail on, uh, on this. What's included in the uh, commentary here is kind of a, a synopsis. I recommend not just reading the synopsis, but going and reading the entire thing that Kitchen wrote. Goodness, it's 11 o'clock. Okay, well, I, I don't want to... I'll have to drop it here. We'll come back to this, and then I'll give you my own outline under point five, the outline of the book, and we'll do that next week and uh, continue working our way through the introduction. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we're looking forward to the blessings of the book of Proverbs, asking, Father, that you would make use of it to equip us individually, but equip this flock collectively. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.